Good morning, good afternoon. So, little Lucy is studying in school biology, the origin of our species. And she's all confused. She comes home and asks her mother, where do we originate from? Where do we come from? And her mother breaks out into a warm smile and says, sit down, I'll share with you our yichus, our pedigree. She says, we have a grandmother that came from a small town in Czechoslovakia, a grandfather from a town in Poland. A few generations back, our great-great-grandfather was a major scholar authored a very important work on Jewish law. And the further back it goes, the better it gets. All, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Sarah Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. And finally to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Beautiful. Her father comes home and she decides to ask him the same question. Where do we originate from? And in stark contrast, his face turns ashen he gets like all disturbed and he says, oh, I was always ruining this day. And he shares, he says, well, a few million years ago, we originated from apes. And before that, from amphibians. And before that, from one-celled bacteria. As far back as we know now, something like 14 billion years, from a ball of gas. So you can imagine Lucy's even more confused than ever. She runs back to her mother and says, I don't understand. You told me one answer. My father told me something completely different. Her mother smiles and says, we both told you the truth. Your father told you about his side of the family. <laughs> and, and I told you about my side of the family. There you have it. The ultimate reconciliation between creationism and evolution you know, this whole long battle about from science and religion, it really comes down to which side of the family it is. Or perhaps in a more serious note, what perspective we'd like to take. We all know when we're at our worst, we can behave like animals. <clears throat> Selfish, narcissistic. And when we're at our best, we can behave like angels. So we do have two voices within us. One perhaps evolved from the animal, and the other that is our divine spirit that allows us to be the best possible people, transcendent beings that know how to give more than take, and all the other noble features that the human beings are capable of. And you could be the same person, and really, even the same day, choose. So he talked about secret of marriage relationships. I think it's vital that we understand what makes us tick. What makes us tick? Because before we talk about love or a soulmate, first you need to know what a soul is and what is love. And there are many different interpretations. And we're thrust into this world and suddenly we're into relationships, whatever age, I mean we begin relationships from young age, but I'm talking about romantic relationships, teen years or later, and no one's trained us, no one has taught us. We learn from example. 
If unfortunately you had dysfunctional examples in your parents or other family members, that becomes your model. And if you had beautiful examples, that's your model. But no one has a full comprehensive picture of what exactly is love, what is intimacy, what is a relationship. That's why you have so many opinions. And we really trial and error. Most of us feel almost like victims of circumstances. Depends what happened. Who you married, who you chose, who you didn't choose. Many of us get very hurt. Some of us make it. Some people have beautiful relationships. Some, some people endure. They just make, they just, it's better, better to stay together than the, the known evil is worse than the unknown evil. Which unfortunately is a big factor. You know, we know the divorce rate is high. But there's another thing called emotional divorce. You may be technically married, but emotionally disconnected. So I want to, of course, address that in this context. I want to perhaps begin with, uh, well, I already began, so another beginning. Um, so I wrote a book called Toward a Meaningful Life. Some of you are familiar with it. Um, I uh, actually, how did I decide what chapters to include in the book? I actually asked people in the street of all backgrounds, men, women, Jew, non-Jew, people of faith and no faith, different ages, like what are the 30 most important issues in your life? And I wrote a chapter on each one of them. Of course, prominent one is a chapter on love, a chapter on marriage, a chapter on intimacy. Not necessarily in that order. And um, when I was writing the book, I hired an editor whose job was basically in writing, there's two stages. You write your ideas, you do it longhand. It's like, like a film. You take hundreds of hours of filming and then you cut it down. So it's a good, a good process would be, first you get all the ideas out, then you get rid of redundancies. Sometimes you do it yourself, but it's difficult as a writer to edit yourself. It's easier to find someone else whose job is just doing that. So I would sometimes write a chapter, 80 pages, and I had my editor who would take it and cut it down take out the best version of 10 versions, etc., etc. His name was Stephen Dubner. At the time, he was a journalist at New York Times, which was perfect. Um, he went on to become a world-famous author. You may have heard of Freakonomics. So he's the co-author of that book. But at that point, he was an editor, and he knew nothing about Judaism. He was actually born, this is a tangent, but it may be relevant a bit. He was born the eighth child of uh, eight children born to two Jewish parents who both converted independently to Catholicism. Catholicism. It's a whole story of its own. He wrote a book on that called Turbulent Souls. So when I met him, he knew nothing about Judaism, which was the right, what I wanted. Because I didn't want his opinion. I didn't want his ideas. I wanted his uh, prose, his editing skills. So I remember one night, we were working with a very intense schedule. One night, around 12 o'clock at night, he gives me a call which we had that open line, but it usually didn't call me midnight. Something must have been important. And he tells me, you know, you're destroying my love life. I said, I don't know, what are you talking about? I don't even know you had a girlfriend. You know, um, he said, yeah, you're destroying it. Why? Because right now we're working on the chapter on love. And he says, everything I'm working on is like, I look at her, doesn't fit. She not exactly lives up to these standards. And these standards are very beautiful. This is what I want. So I said, is that my problem? You know, that's your problem. Um, I'm not going to change the standards. Uh, I mean, it was a humorous conversation, but he really he was like serious. Well, well, what do you know? A few weeks later, he tells me, well, we broke up. 
and you're at fault. So I say, are you happy or not happy? He says, yeah, I'm happy because uh, I realize it's not for me. A while later, he announced that he met a nice Jewish girl and he's going to marry her. And he re-embraced his Judaism, just for the record, at the chagrin of his mother, who, who saw him as being, she said to him on her deathbed, you're the only child that won't go to heaven. The Jewish converted to Catholic mother saying to the boy that grew up in a choir boy in a church, and he became, uh, re-embraced his Judaism. He invited me to his wedding, and he asked me to say a few words. I said a few words. What did I say? I say, even though you may not know this, but indirectly I'm responsible for this shidduch. Because had he not broken up with the previous one, and more importantly, the fact that he chose this woman means that she does live up to those standards. So I can say I helped educate him to the higher standards, and thank God. And today he's married, happily married with children. I just thought it was a good way to capture. So what exactly do I write in the chapters that uh, so impacted him, and hopefully others? So I write there exactly this, this thousands of year old, over four, almost three and a half thousand year old secrets to how we as a Jewish people are here today. There's nobody sitting in this room that would not be here if they did not have parents. You all agree with that scientific uh, hypothesis. And um, your parents had parents before them. And we're in an unbroken chain of thousands of years. So someone must have done something right. If marriages back then were the same state as they were today, there's no way it would have lasted thousands of years. It wouldn't last five years. So what are what was the secret? Did they just endure anything and they just accepted everything and just lived self-sacrificed lives without fulfillment? It's hard to imagine. So there are secrets. There are real formula. And I want to address that, of course, very directly. Some of it, as I said, I captured in those chapters which he uses as a follow-up to what I will be saying here. So I think a good way to do this, it's always a good way is to do, present something in a contrasting models. Because then you can compare. So though there are many theories on love, on sexual attraction, on what drives a relationship, it's still obviously quite confusing because most people don't really have any definitive um, definition. But there is a prevalent, maybe the most prevalent view in the Western world on what a relationship is, or maybe more specifically, why should two people be attracted to each other and ready to commit to each other and build a home and a family? So again, I want to qualify. By no means is this an exhaustive discussion on every vari variation of the theories, but it's a good, one good theory, it's a pretty predominant one, and I contrast that with what we'll call the Torah theory. And I'm not here to make a case for one or the other. I think it will be pretty obvious what resonates. So the first model, I'll call it the Darwinian-Freudian model. And uh, we'll do it through the lens of a um, philosopher known as Schopenhauer. And what I'm going to say now will sound to you a little exaggerated, but it's not. You can look it up. And Schopenhauer writes, based on the theories of evolution, is this. The, pre the, the prevailing and the most powerful driving force in life, in every species of life, whether it's the vegetable world, the vegetation, and the animal kingdom, or the human, is one word, 
the, the perpetuation of the species, perpetuation. Because the cardinal rule of existence, sometimes called survival of the fittest, is that the species must perpetuate. If it doesn't perpetuate, it dies. That drives everything. And I'm sure you've read, you can read today in newspaper accounts, in articles, academic research papers, anywhere. Everything is explained with that. Why we choose the mates we choose. Why animals are always looking. The female are looking for the best genes. That's why they want the males to fight with each other to see who's more powerful. And the males look for the most nurturing genes. Everything. Even happiness. Even altruism is explained with this theory. Because for a reservation of the species, a perpetuation of the species, we need to be kind to each other because we need to coexist. So everything is based on that principle. In Richard Dawkins' words, the great radical atheist, he says in his famous book, it's called the selfish gene. The selfish gene. The gene itself is selfish because all it cares about is me, 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 and how am I going to perpetuate myself? How am I going to spread my seeds? So Schopenhauer, based on that, takes it to the logical conclusion. He says, okay, if that's the driving force, so let's get rid of all the smoke screens, and as unpopular and uncomfortable it may be, a relationship is actually a myth. It's all about getting male and female together to breed so the species can continue. And animals have it right. They do it efficiently, and that's that. Human beings have evolved into mutations. That's what he calls it. And it's a mistake of evolution. It turned into something that it should never have become. A whole process called courtship and romance. You know, like elephants or other animals, they don't need to say, hey, you want a drink? <laughs> or uh, let's hang out, let's go to a museum, a movie, and all that, how much money has to be spent and all the aggravations and all that. Is she interested in me? Is he interested in me? You know, the whole thing. They do what they have to do. They go through certain maneuvers, and that's it. Very efficient. The human race, we've turned this into a whole thing. Trillions of dollars. And the illusion, in his words, an illusion that we really care for each other. He says that's evolutionary trick to get two people basically to breed. And it became very inefficient because humans, their minds evolved too quickly. Their pride... They can't accept that there's just two bacteria mating, and they've turned it into a whole thing. And romance and flowers, like that ad, that city, uh, what was it, one of these credit card ads, where you see a woman gets a bouquet of flowers, and on top it says she's thinking, was it love or was it the miles, you know? So it's a whole process, and you all know everybody goes through it. And he basically says, let's shatter this illusion called romance and courtship, because that's not what it is. It's basically the species needs to perpetuate, and humans who are mutations have distorted the whole picture. Now, I'm sure you would agree, not very romantic. You probably don't want to say this at a date. It's not a great pickup line. Hey, you want to breed, you know? <laughs> but that's essentially what he writes. And um, obviously, as he makes it clear, no one's going to advertise this because humans, that's exactly the point. They don't accept this version. But it is the prevalent theory, and you ask scientists, they will say exactly right. But again, it's not popular to put it this way, so it's packaged a little differently. It's packaged differently. 
Okay, that's one model. Let's talk about the Torah model now. The Torah model, by stark contrast, complete contrast, says it in a few succinct sentences in the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the Torah. And what does it say? That God wants to create an entity, a creature, in God's image, Salam Elikim. And then the verse continues. So God created Zachar Nekeva Bara Isa. Male and female, he created them. And then, so initially they're like a dragonous creature, male, female. And then God split them into two, male, female. And this is the secret to sexual attraction and love. That they're drawn to each other. They leave their families and their homes. They're drawn to each other to reconnect to the other half, so to speak. So they can reconnect with a divine image, which is only possible when male and female join together as one flesh. And then, as an addition, completely unrelated to this first point, God bless them, they shall have children. That this sacred union will bear children. So, completely antithetical to the, 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 fam the familiar stereotype that Jews are all about having children, it's the exact opposite. That's the evolutionary theory, it's all about perpetuation of the species. In Jewish thinking, in Torah thinking, love is an end in itself. The mere fact that two people join together is the most divine act we can do. Love is the kiss of God. And the embrace of male and female is the embrace of what we call soulmates to reconnect to that higher unity. And there are serious and far-reaching implications of these two models, which I'll address in a moment. But think of this model. You tell me what resonates. I know I'm biased. Obviously, I'm coming from the second model world. But you check it out yourselves, and it's pretty obvious what resonates, what we'd like to embrace. I can't prove that model two is better than model one in a scientific way, but it sure feels better, and it sure makes our relationships far more meaningful. And I would be very uncomfortable to have to tell my children that, hey, we're just breeding, and I don't really love you. It's just a perpetuation of a species. I don't even think, it, and we all would agree that it's not even healthy. So that alone tells you if it's not healthy, then maybe it's not real, if that's the attitude. So here we have two models, and here are the implications. Number model number one, the key thing is, it's all selfish. It's all about me. Model number two, it's the exact opposite. It's all about you, because it's transcendence. I can't become greater than myself if I just perpetuate myself. But if I have another part, and both of us together need each other. And both of us complement each other. And both of us connect to a higher transcendent reality. Only when we're joined together, then it's about me becoming greater than myself. It's a very different, a diff very different reaction, very different way of looking at love. Love is about giving, about learning to become greater than yourself, not becoming more of yourself. That's one key difference. And there are others as well. So, you will probably remember the book, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Very popular. Everyone laughed. So many resonating little uh, anecdotes. But it also had a lot of stereotypes. It was a little uh, too entertaining for my personal taste. But there was another book later written, and I recommend it. It's by Deborah Tannen. It's a series of books, actually. How men and women communicate. Men and women talk. 
Allah, that really a different level. So I'll just share with you one thing, which is uh, very interesting. So here's a uh, hypothetical scenario. It's not so hypothetical as you'll soon see. Um, and based on your laughter, we'll know how uh, it accurately portrays the reality. So husband comes home from work, hard day's work, comes home, and um, his wife says, so honey, how was your day? Response, monosyllabic, good. It was good. Anything else? No, it was good. Exactly what he said yesterday and two days ago and two years ago since they began their marriage almost, except, I guess, from the when after the honeymoon. Good. Then he asks her, and, and what about you, my love? How was your day? And she starts going on, all the details, how she put this one in place, and she finally stood up for herself, you know, this, uh, coffee break, tea break, and all that. Every detail. And of course, the more she shares, the more he's dispensing unsolicited advice. You know, because he thinks if she's sharing, that means she wants my advice. And I, I told you you should have always put him in his place, whatever it is, you know. I see that only the women are laughing at that. Okay. Good. Um, and uh, they go out to dinner. It's not over. It gets more exciting. They go out to dinner with friends, another couple. And at dinner, suddenly he comes alive. He starts talking about all his conquests and all his uh, successes that day. And how he made this move and this sale. And it goes on bragging about everything that he uh, accomplished that day. The more he's bragging and the more the other couple is impressed, the quieter his wife becomes and the angrier she becomes. And, um, and he keeps going on and on until a point where everybody sees the deafening silence of his spouse is very clear, very loud. You know, you ever deal with the silence of your uh, spouse, of a woman? What do you think is worse, a tantrum or is it silence? Of course silence, because tantrum, at least you know what she's thinking. Okay. So there it is, the silence. It's very clear something's wrong. He has no idea, because he, he doesn't have a clue. You know, they say well, about computers, are they masculine or feminine? So one of the arguments that a computer is masculine is because it's full of data, but it's clueless. You know? So he's clueless, and there she is, real angry, and he has no idea. And she starts making with her eyes. She wants signaling to him. So they go out to the powder room or whatever. She says, I want to go home. We're having a great time. The main course hasn't even been brought. And I want to go home immediately. What happened? With everything beautiful. We're sitting, beautiful dinner, beautiful place. He has no idea. I'm going home. You either come with me or you stay. Obviously, he's not staying. So they come back with some cockamamie excuse, some emergency, and they're off. Now, if the silence is deafening there, you can imagine what it's like on a long ride home. So silence is bad, but imagine silence in a car ride for two hours. You know, I don't know if it was two hours in this case, but no one talking to you. They come home. So here Deborah Tannen says there are two scenarios. Either what usually happens is they both go back in their own corners, they go back to life, and this will repeat itself many times, Frustration will be there. It may undermine the marriage. It may not. Maybe they just get comfortable with this uh, discomfort. Or what should happen now, what could happen, is that they actually talk about it. And what would she say? 
She would say, when, we're, when, I, when I asked you what your day was like, you told me good. You come to the restaurant, suddenly you're talking forever about it. His response is, I'm just showing off. It's meaningless. That what matters is that we went out to dinner. Who cares what I was talking about? We're connecting at dinner. We're, you know, that's what we do. We show off. For the woman, she says, when I shared with you what my day was like, you're giving me advice. All I want to do is share with you. I love you. I want to share my day. And he says, I didn't know that. I thought if you share with me, it means you might my advice. And she concludes and says, basically, that men and women communicate differently. This is her theory. Because they grow up differently. Boys bond, little boys bond by doing things together. They play war, they play this, they play that. And girls bond by talking to each other. So the talking itself is a connection. It's the environment, it's a relationship. Men is talking, if they do talk, they think it's about, you want my advice, you want my opinion, because you think I'm smart or something. And for a woman, talking is a relationship. For a man, it's actions. They went out to dinner, it doesn't matter if we don't talk. The fact we're just sitting, man thinks that's an intimate connection. Or as they like to put it, that's not her words, but somewhere else it says, others say, that for women, love is a state of being, a noun. And for men, love is an action, a verb. And I'll tell you this. Many men who read her book come home to their wives and say, you know what, I'm not so bad. I'm more like all other men. We all say good, you know? And in a way, in a way there's a truth to it. The fact is we'd like to transcend that and be able to, the man should be able to talk a little more and the woman should be able to understand the man's perspective. But I just thought it was a very powerful insight and how many other things are there that when you cut again to the core of who we are, you discover a whole new take on love and relationships. So let me go back to what I was saying in the two models. So the, the, I would call the two models almost the difference between a body-like model and a soul-like model. So here, in New York, where I come from, originate from, I was, given, I was invited to give a class at a thing called Learning Annex. It's like an adult educational informal groups throughout over the city. Not, to, not a Jewish uh, organization. A lot of learning annex groups. And my topic they gave me was, is there love forever after? Okay, beautiful question. So there were about 50, 60 people, probably evenly between men and women, clearly some couples. And I opened up the, question, the discussion. I said, so anybody here believes in love forever after? Without exaggeration, one woman, young woman, raises her hand. She believes in it. No one else did. I wasn't surprised they don't believe in it. I was surprised that they would acknowledge it, especially when they're sitting there, their spouse. You know, that sounds a little odd to me. At least fake it, you know. Um, okay. So I started asking them, so tell me, so what, is the, what would be the reason? Why not? It sounds so beautiful. So one guy just puts it really bluntly. He says, it's, it's fantasy. It's a matter of movies, books. Nothing lasts forever. Not the food we eat, not the money we make, not our looks, not everything erodes, deteriorates, ages, and perishes. And a few others concurred. They all seem to agree with that, which is what I wanted to hear, actually. So I said, so you're absolutely right. So why would suddenly love last forever. Why? One thing of all things that we do as mortals lasts forever. Okay. So I said, you're right. 
But here I want to introduce another ingredient into the equation. So generally speaking, in relationships, you talk about compatibility. So there's three basic compatibilities that everybody can relate to. One is physical compatibility. Two people are attracted to each other, physically, sexually. Then there is emotional compatibility. That's a little more than that. Why? Because you can fall in love with someone that looks in a model in a magazine, and then you meet them, and there's no one there, and you have no emotional connection. And then there's intellectual compatibility. You share ideas, you share ideologies, you respect each other's intelligence, there's conversation, there's argument, whatever. Okay, so I said this to the group, and I said, so what do you think? So one, one woman says, if I had one out of the three, I'd be happy. You know? Two out of the three is like, would be uh, perfect. Three out of the three is a complete miracle. Okay, interesting. So I said, well, let me throw in a fourth just already, we're already there, might as well throw in a fourth ingredient. And we'll call it spiritual compatibility. What is spiritual compatibility? Simply this, two people who share a vision together. A vision. What kind of mark they want to leave in this world? What kind of home they want to build? What kind of children? When people come into their environment, what vibe do they want to give off? That's the fourth. And the fourth is completely different than the first three. The first three are important. They're vital. But the first three are subject to the laws of mortality because physical looks change. Emotional interests change. Sometimes you actually get bored with something you're used to. You look for another emotional stimulation. And intellectual interests change. But the fourth does not. A vision is something that is enduring. How you manifest that vision can change. But you look at any couple, and I've seen, I've studied, I've witnessed it, I've seen in my own family. People who God bless them with long life, maybe married 60, 70 years, they may be 90 years old, but they have a certain sparkle. I'm not saying everyone, but they have, and you look at what, what, is, what do they have others don't have? They share something that's more than, the, that's beyond and transcends the things that change. Their vision of life never changed, and they still connect on that level just as when they were 20-year-old sweethearts. And everybody in that room, as skeptical and cynical as they were, completely embraced this. As a matter of fact, the guy that was most cynical said to me, what you said was very powerful. The only thing I, I wonder is, how come no one ever told this to us? That's exactly right. No one ever told this to us. We're left, as I said at the outset, on our own. You're thrown into a world, relationships. Now you go, go figure it out. Which teenager can figure anything out? And the, and the hormones are working. The attraction is there. And it's not like you could just sit down and go, okay, I'll go for a course on love and relationships and then I'll get back to you. So we're thrust into it. And then once we experience it and we lose our innocence, so to speak, then uh, whatever happens, happens. And if you're lucky, you're lucky. And if you grew up in a good home, as I mentioned, a good nurturing environment, great. And if you didn't, too bad. And then all kinds of things happen in the relationships. But imagine if we could train and educate our children from the youngest of age, obviously when they're capable of understanding. Well, they're even capable from the earliest age by seeing nurturing, loving parents. So if they saw all these four compatibilities, but especially the fourth, from the youngest age, and then you teach it to them very deliberately, not just by accident or you expect them to go find it somewhere, 
It's a whole different way of looking at the human being. Because you know what other thing they'll be exposed to is the other model. Because that's what's taught in the schools. And that's by, essentially by osmosis, is the, is the prevalent way of thinking. Not that everyone's going to read Schopenhauer or Darwin. But that's the, the general mood. Relationships. Relationships equate with commitment. Equate, equate with sanctity. Ask most people in the Western world. Not necessarily. Why should a relationship equate with commitment? Maybe just about mutual sexual pleasure, which maybe is not exactly Schopenhauer's words, but it basically comes down to me, 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 and that's when it's over with. Why should I be committed? I know a guy, he came to me so proud, he says, you know, I finally mastered a relationship where I have no commitment. So I said, really, that's very admirable. What does she think about it? He says, she doesn't know yet, you know? Okay, Beautiful. Now, I understand if there's commitment and no, nothing else, you need to have the other compatibility. But at the end of the day, what Judaism really teaches us is an unbelievable gift. It's not even a religious concept. Is that love is more than you. Is that something so frightening? Yeah, if you're a selfish narcissist and it's all about me, that can be frightening. The guy goes on a date with a young woman and for two hours he's talking about himself. He's talking about himself, you know, and then after two hours, she waits patiently, and um, then he says, okay, enough about me. Now, what do you think about me? Okay? <laughs> so there you have two levels of narcissism. The first one, he talks about himself, and then this narcissist thinks he's actually being benevolent because he's giving her equal time to talk about him. Didn't even cons consider that maybe there's another person here. So yes, some people, frankly, are trained that way or they may be by default and they've just gotten spoiled. But then you hear the concept, especially when you're younger and impressionable, that a relationship is the only way you can really transcend yourself, a place you can reach God, you can reach higher purpose, values that are beyond you, a way you can get beyond your subjectivity because you have another person with a different opinion, a different personality. And there's also the other compatibilities that work together. It's very refreshing. Extremely refreshing. And it's not something that has to necessarily in any way count. It's not like saying, oh, you're a religious person. That's how you believe it. I don't look at it that way at all. I think it's the most important psychological insight that our world needs to hear. And that's the Torah's view. So the message and the formula, of course, is this. That if you are able to look at your life from the eyes of the soul instead of the eyes of the body, that's the key. And that begins at the earliest possible age. But it's never, never too late, because we can be adults. And even if we have distorted views, and we all have some, including myself, but when you look at it, you learn things. When you look at it from the Torah point of view, you discover that a relationship has that sanctity. And commitment is not just a side effect. It's not like, uh, who said it? Marilyn Monroe. I'm not sure exactly why I would quote her in this context, but why not? You know, so she said, so what did she say? She said that women marry, in, women have sex in order to marry, and men marry in order to have sex. Okay, great. Um, that fits into model number one, obviously. From a Torah point of view, commitment is not a dirty word. Commitment is the natural outgrowth of transcendence. You're committed to something greater than yourself, and it happens to take the shape of your partner, your spouse and also the other way around. And none of you are more than the other, everyone compliments, and both connect, together connect 
to a greater reality, what we call God, the image of God. I really never found a more eloquent, a more romantic view on love and intimacy and relationships. And it's a gift that was given to us. And in many ways, it almost demystifies the mystery. Because at the end of the day, sexuality, intimacy, love is a mystery. But now you realize why it's a mystery, because it's exactly that. It's godlike. It's not man-made. Things that are man-made are not mysteries. You can pretty much figure it out, because men created it. Human beings created it. This indeed is a divine creation. Only a God could have come up with such a thing. To put two people together, strangers, and expect them to love each other, as different as they may be. But he gave them a gift, God, and that is the power of your soul to transcend yourself. And that is the key. Then any argument that comes up, I'm not saying arguments won't happen, and there'll be many tensions, but there's something to work with. I'll give you an example. When I um, sometimes counsel couples getting married, and even secular couples, who want to have some sense of what a Jewish marriage is like, so I give them the basics, what a Jewish build, the structure of a Jewish marriage is Shabbat, Kashrut, mikvah, sanctity to sexuality. And everyone grows in their own way, but at least have an awareness that marriage is more than just a uh, contract. There's a sanctity to it. And I always suggest, completely optional, I suggest, I said, you know, now you're going into a new relationship, a new marriage, a new beginning. Why don't you take upon yourself a few commitments? Like what? Every, let's say Thursday or Friday, whenever you like, an hour a week, study something together, something you enjoy. It could be something from the Torah, it could be something spiritual, anything that really you enjoy, but you commit to study together. And maybe once a month, host something in your home that is like an event, have a speaker, or just uh, friends together. It's just a nice, warm evening. A couple who I, shared, who I suggested this two years ago, a few years ago, called me a few years after their marriage, and they told me they want to share something with me. They said, our marriage, after a while, we loved each other, but it went south, went bad. He was too busy, she was involved in her things, and they grew apart to the point they were literally at the stage of divorce. But the only thing they maintained, they didn't even speak to each other, but the, since they made the commitment that on Thursday evenings they would learn together, that's what they did. All week was silence. They all found different things to do. They didn't even see each other. But Thursday they would get together because they made the commitment. They said that commitment we made Thursday was what saved our marriage, and based on that we rebuilt it. What happened? That one thing they did was not about them. They made a commitment, something that wasn't about them. It wasn't we go to a nice restaurant. We're going to enjoy company. That's beautiful, but still about you. They did one thing that was not about them, and that saved their marriage because it allowed a little, not airtight, that everything was destroyed. There was a little fresh air, and they rebuilt. I was obviously extremely proud to hear that. That's unbelievable. But that's the idea of transcendence, that you introduce into your life activities that are more than just mutual interests, something visionary, something transcendent. And that is the secret to love forever after, as I shared to the group in Learning Annex. The first three, as we said, physical, emotional, intellectual, are all subject to changes and ups and downs. However, a vision that's not about you, precisely because it's not about you, it's not mortal. It's a God-given gift. You're doing something that's beyond you, that 
is enduring. And that's why we say the greatest blessing by a wet marriage and a wedding is what? A binyan ade ad. To build an eternal edifice. And you say twice eternal. Binyan is edifice, a structure, a building. Ade means eternal. Ade ad means eternal, eternal. Why? Because you're introducing the third secret partner. You ever go to a wedding ceremony? The chuppah. What's the chuppah? It's a canopy that surrounds everyone. Husband and wife, parents, everybody. Because there's something greater than the sum of the parts. Something transcendent that's an equalizer. We introduce that into the relationship and then you have an enduring element that can bless the marriage to be forever after because it's no longer human. And I would submit that that is exactly why we are here today. We are children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of people who knew this secret. They may never have articulated, frankly. I remember my grandparents. They would have these ridiculous fights, but they loved each other, and they didn't even know how to say, I love you. Not in, not in English, not in Yiddish, and not in Russian. Now, I'm not saying today we need to say it. I know for some reason, if I don't say I love you, it's not something's missing. But they loved each other. I saw it. I breathed it. It was an innocent world. There's no question that generations had that vision. Maybe it was due to our oppression. You know, when you're suffering and you're being discriminated against, it forces you to strengthen your inner wor world and your inner life because you have nothing but transcendence. Today it's more challenging because we have too much leisure, which is a blessing. We have a lot of comforts. And comforts tend to cause people to wander and forget and does not... Is not, is not a good ingredient to crystallizing your value system. I don't know South Africa that well, but United States, America. You ask young people, tell me, what are you ready to fight for? What are you ready to die for? I don't mean physically die for. Something you, they'll usually tell you either a video game or sports or something like that. Doesn't even they won't even consider the option, some transcendent vision about life it's not something you're trained to think about. Fight for money. I want to be really rich. Why? I could do everything. I mean, it's almost primitive if you think about it. So yes, in times of difficulties, you tend to crystallize your values. And today, with ease, you know, we're comfortable. We've learned the art of uh, doing nothing. You know, there's a guy sitting on a bench, an old Jew, and uh, he's all depressed. His friend comes over and says, so Yankel, why are you so depressed today? My wife is very angry at me. What's new? She's always angry at you. No, today's something special. What happened? This morning, I went, she was going to work. She asked me, what are you going to do today? And I said, nothing. Another monosyllabic answer. Nothing. So she said, you said that yesterday, that you're going to do nothing. So I told her I wasn't finished, you know? I wasn't finished doing nothing. So we live in a world where nothing has become some type of like uh, virtue. You know, I'd like to be a couch potato and not feel guilty. That's what people feel. Human beings by nature are pulsating with a heartbeat, with breath, a soul that's constantly restless. And some people are looking to figure out how to destroy and numb our restlessness. A relationship is anything but numb. It's all about restlessness. But a, health, a healthy tension, a healthy angst, if it gets too extreme, obviously, that's not healthy either. But you need a certain give and take in life. That's what causes, uh, that's what brings out the best in us. So, my friends, 
We have, thank God, a formula that's thousands of years old. It's been forgotten in many ways, but it's still beating inside each of our chests, and it's right there for your taking. Just a matter of opening yourself up to new perspectives, and they're actually not really new. They've always been there, but they're just trapped a bit. They're trapped. And whoever you are in your life, whether you are in a good relationship, this message has a tremendous way of enhancing it because relationships have to always be maintained and grow. And if you're in a bad relationship, do not give up. There is always hope because the soul is beating inside you. And the same within your spouse. You have to maybe have a third party to help get beyond the immediate and try to reintroduce or introduce for the first time the transcendent, that fourth level of compatibility. Everybody, by birthright, has a right to have a vision and is capable of finding one. It's not as complicated as you think. What's complicated is our routines. We're used to things. So we're into patterns and habits, and it's hard to break out of a routine, even if it's an unhealthy one and even if it's a destructive one. So that's the effort. You have to break through. Those of you that have never been in a relationship yet or you're looking for, so I extend my blessing to all of you, actually. Those that have one should only enhance it and become the healthiest type of thriving relationship. And those that have to find their soulmate, it should be done with the least amount of aggravation. And I want to conclude, um, because I've written so much about this, and I know a talk is only a talk, you can only say that much. If you want more on this topic, check out my book, Toward a Meaningful Life. I was just told as I was walking in here that the books have arrived here in Johannesburg at the Kolel Bookstore. Is there such a thing here? I think that's what they said. I think available today or tomorrow. Or you can find it online. And also, please visit my uh, website, MeaningfulLife.com. Very easy. MeaningfulLife.com slash live. And you can find a whole bunch of, we prepared a special bunch of uh, free materials and subscriptions that you can take advantage of. And please see me, even though I come from another part of the world, we're one family. Souls are connected. You know, bodies separate us. And for me, it's the greatest honor to be able to intersect with the journey of other people's souls. It's been very gratifying to be here for that reason. That's how I always look at things, that every community has its powers, and to meet new people or people I know, and just have that uh, majestic synergy of different ways of looking at things, and yet we're all part of one larger picture. That's a vision way of looking at life. It's been a great pleasure and honor, so I want to thank you all for that. And as I said, I hope that each of you find your spiritual destiny and uh, find the person to share that journey with you and realize there's much more to life than the immediate instant gratification that you have a great, great mission and a great indispensable contribution to make to this thing called the history and the story of life. Thank you very much.